0: Those are the cards you're supposed to be dealt in life and it's wonderful. The, the life that you have is wonderful and now go to live it. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Koran Podcast, and we are really excited to be joined here in the Koran offices by the amazing Rabbi David Foreman from Aleph Beta. You may have heard him on the podcast before, Uh, and you will know then that you are in for a treat uh, for our discussion uh, in this week's episode. And we are going to ask Rabbi Foreman the question of this series, which is to teach us the Torah al regal achat. So here is our conversation with Rabbi David Foreman. So we're delighted to be joined
2: uh, by Rabbi David Foreman from Aleph Peter. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, and we'll, we'll jump straight in. So uh, Rabbi Foreman, please can you teach us the whole Torah standing on one leg.
0: Oh, you remind me of somebody. (laughs) I'm I'm just, first of all, I'd like to see you actually stand in this studio on one foot for my answer. I think that's the least I can get out of of answering your question there. Um, But sure. uh, So my answer to that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different answers you can give. But um, what I'm going to do, actually, is go with, um, you know, with the... The actual traditional answer to this question, right? So the, the the question actually comes from the Gemara, right? And the Gemara records um, the this famous episode with Hillel, uh, where a um, prospective convert comes to him and says, uh, can you teach me the entire Torah on one foot? By the way, let me just, before I even get to Hillel's answer, let me just ask you, right, how do you interpret the question? In other words, uh, there's an element of humor in the question, right? Here's this guy, he's standing on one foot. Can you teach me the entire Torah? And, uh, you know, you could sort of imagine ushering him out of the room and saying, uh, no, that's, that's ridiculous. Or, Uh, You know, one could see it as as kind of humorous and one could see even the answer of Hillel as having its own kind of humor like look I am going to teach you the entire Torah standing on one foot but if you think about it you can sort of take a charitable view of the question from the standpoint of who it is that's asking the question it's not just anybody who shows up to ask this question it's a ger who shows up to ask this question either a convert a recent convert or somebody who is thinking of converting and if you think about it wouldn't that be the question you would want to know if you're thinking of converting? Like if you're thinking of converting, wouldn't you wanna know, like here you've got this Torah, it's got 613 mitzvahs, like how are you supposed to wrap your mind around that? Like you know, I, I imagine, like, uh, imagine you're on some flight, you know, on a united flight to Israel, and somebody accosts you and says, you know, are you an Orthodox Jew? Yes. And like, really, because I always had this question, like, can you, like, talk to me about Judaism? And say, Judaism? Well, we've got a lot of mitzvahs in Judaism, like 613 mitzvahs. So those are a lot of mitzvahs. So it's like, you know, can you, like, give me a sense of the overall flavor of things? And the truth is, that's not something which even nowadays we're accustomed to do. Like, in yeshiva, uh, in school, we learn a lot about the details, but we don't learn that much about what the glue that binds everything together. And you can imagine sort of starting them off like, well, here's mitzvah number one, here's mitzvah number two. And like, and you can even imagine like uh, having in your briefcase, you know, one of the, your, your competitor's books, uh, art scroll book on, on brachos, right? And it's like, oh, brachas. is that one of them? It says, no, that's actually, it's probably just a rabbinic command. It's like, like, there's those two. It's like, well, you've got 430 pages just on that. So yeah, well, I could talk to you about the brachon strawberry. All of these are details, (laughs) right? But he's like, no, just tell me the whole thing. Give me a vision, because why would I be compelled to convert or be part of what you're doing if you can't give me some sort of overall vision? And I think that's probably what the Ger was looking for, right? Teaching the Torah on one foot may have been a facetious way of saying it. But what he's really saying is if you can't do that, then why should I bother with this? In other words, if you can't give me a mission statement, if you can't give me some reason for understanding why I should be part of this, then why should I be part of it. So Hillel's answer, which is the answer that I'm going to give you, right, is um, is uh, he comes up with it himself. And he says, that which is hateful to you, don't do your fellow. That is the entire Torah. Right, zil gemara. Everything else, you can go and learn. But I've just given you the the essence of it. Rashi in in the gemara is immediately struck with a question, right? Which he says, like, well, one, one second here. How could you tell me that the entire Torah boils down to this principle? That which is hateful to you, don't do to your friend. Maybe that could work for half the Torah, right? Maybe that could work for relationships between people and people. But how in the world does that work for relationships between people and God? And doesn't God count? And Rashi's answer, which is really kind of striking, is that when Hillel talks about Chavrach, your friend, he's talking about God too, right? In other words, what he's really saying is a larger principle, which is that which is hateful to you don't do to a special other, right? Whether that other is human, whether that other is superhuman, right? Don't do that to a special other. So now it becomes starts to become an overarching principle, but. In thinking about what Hillel is saying, what I would like to to sort of ask you is like, you know, is two questions. If you could sort of define what he's saying, boil it down further. If Hillel is boiling down the entire Torah to this phrase, could you boil this phrase down to one word, right? What what is he really saying in this phrase? That's question number one. And question number two is where does he get it from? Where does he get this from? He literally made something up. It's not like he found a mitzvah in the Torah and said, this is the most important mitzvah in the Torah. He found words that don't exist anywhere in the Torah. You can't find this anywhere in the Torah. Now, what's interesting is that someone else, one of Hillel's more, you know, Tanaic colleagues, was similarly challenged himself to try to in essence, boil the Torah down to one on one foot. And what he said, Raviyah Kiva, is love your neighbor as yourself. So let me begin by asking you, are they saying the same thing or not? Right? Is love your neighbor as yourself basically the same thing, and love your neighbors as yourself applies to God, applies to people, you should do it to everybody, right? Is that the same thing as saying, that which is hateful to you, don't do to your friend? So I'll interview you and just open that up. What do you think, guys?
2: I mean, I'm I'm struck by how one is, I'm going to get my parts of speech wrong, but one is One's more passive and one's more active. One is don't, as in don't do, and one is yes. you should love.
0: one is active, one is passive, um, right? Which would you say is the stronger, bolder claim, love your neighbors yourself or that which is hateful to you, don't do to others? Well, we have to, it's like, ahava is more than just don't do that. Yeah, that's pretty passionate. That's pretty strong, right? It's requiring me to do something, to love, to experience a feeling, right? Love your neighbors yourself. R- Rav Kiva by contrast, is taking a much more reserved perspective on this. Right, that which is hateful to you, don't do your friend, which is sort of emphatically not the same thing as love. I'll give you sort of an example to prove it. Right, imagine that you were, um, imagine you were on your way home from work. Um, If you were in Israel, so you're passing by the store right there at the corner of Katsefet, right? Which is the local ice cream store. If you were in America, you're passing by Baskin Robbins, right? So I remember my childhood, Baskin Robbins was a part of it. Now, when I was a kid in Baskin Robbins, they had a thing called the flavor of the month. And I remember very vividly when a flavor of the month was black licorice ice cream. It was the most disgusting thing you've ever seen.
2: Okay? I'm, uh, I'm going to put, because yes. someone talked about this recently, there's, this, there's an ice cream store in Natanya that does it and it's actually
1: delicious.
0: Black it, licorice. Think, yeah.
2: Well I'm also later. If you like
0: black licorice. So I'm a black licorice hater, yeah. right? I'm a red licorice kind of guy. If you're a black licorice hater, the notion of black licorice ice cream, which is black and sort of slimy, and it's like the worst flavor you can imagine in candy, it's it's quite repulsive. And imagine, I mean at least for me. <laughs> and imagine but for me, right? So imagine I, maybe there's some people who like it. So imagine I'm coming home from work one day, and I stop by Baskin Robbins, and their flavor of the month is black licorice ice cream. And I know my wife likes ice cream, and I come home. And my wife says to me, so I know you passed by the ice cream store. What did you bring me? And you say, nothing. Absolutely nothing. The flavor of the month this, this week was black licorice ice cream. Black licorice ice cream was disgusting. I'm repelled by it. That which is hateful. Ravi Kiva said, don't do your friends very hateful to me. I would never impose black licorice ice cream on you. So I came home with nothing. How impressed would my wife be? right? So, but don't you love me? Like, where's the pralines and cream like, for, 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 for something delicious? So it's not the same thing, right? not imposing upon someone something that you hate is not the same thing as loving them. So the question is of the two, you know, I would say, you know, at face value, Hillel's argument, love your neighbor as yourself seems more compelling, right? The Torah is about love. Love is wonderful if you think about all the movies out there, right? You know, love triumphs over all over every adversary. That's a, that's a trope of Hollywood. It would be great if the Torah believes that. And yet, here comes Ravi Akiva and seems to be specifically retreating from that into something much more conservative, right? This notion, Hino. no, it's about that which you hate, don't do to your fellow. So let me come back to this other question, which is, where did Ravi Akiva get it from? Right? So Hillel got it Hino. from a verse. Where did he get the way. Yeah.
2: Got it? Yeah. Ravi Akiva gets it from a Where did
0: Ravi Akiva get Um, I'm sorry, I'm mixing up the two of them. (laughs) I apologize. One more time. (laughs) (laughs) Hillel is the one who says, Vahavta Hillel is... Oh, I'm, I'm other reversed. way, other That's way. Let's try it again. <laughs> we'll
1: cut, this, we'll just cut for, this, Just for context, Rabbi Forman has generously given us time on a very quick trip to Israel, right. so he might be slightly... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: it's
1: very jet The disclaimer
0: is also in the show notes as well. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's very, he's very jet lagged, right. So Hillel is the guy who meets the gear He's our mister. Uh, that which is hateful to you, don't do to your friend. Rivikiva is uh, called the God of the Torah. That which uh, And again, seems seems makes sense, it's a verse, but where does this other Aramaic um, formulation come from? Um, what's his source? Um, and what does it boil down to? So the argument I want to make, really, is that the same way that Vahavta l'Reach ha-Kamocha Akiva's viewpoint is is rooted in a biblical verse, this other viewpoint of Hillel um that which is hateful to you, don't do your friend, is also rooted in the text of the Torah. And where, the question is, where did he see it? I want to argue that he actually saw it in the Ten Commandments, that he looked at the Ten Commandments, which is basically you could really argue is our fundamental text, and he sort of extracted it from there. And um, I have a piece on this, which you can see in Olive Beta, but I'll I'll give you a brief sort of summary uh, summary of it and try to show you how I think Ravi Kiva extracted it. What's fascinating about the Ten Commandments is that it, you know everybody reads the, the Ten Commandments for its content, for its words. But what's really fascinating is its structure. And structure matters you know, often just as much as, as content when you're reading uh, very, very important documents. What I want to argue is that there's three levels of structure in uh, the Ten Commandments, and each rides upon uh, each rides upon the other. The most obvious level of structure in the Ten Commandments is just the fact that there's two tablets. It didn't have to be two tablets. If I was Moses, it would be easier to walk down the mountain with just one tablet. Why do I need two tablets? Two tablets means there's two categories. But the two categories don't immediately break into the same categories that we were educated about. If you went to school in yeshiva, you know where you were taught that there's relationships between people and God on one tablet and on the other tablet, relationships between people and other people. And that's almost true. The reason why it's not entirely true is there's one little problem with it, and it is commandment number five the last commandment on the first tablet because the first tablet is basically all about relationships between people and God except for the last command and the last command is relationships between you and your parents it's love uh, it's honor your your father and your mother um, and so the question is what's that doing on a command on a on a tablet that all the other commands are relationships between people and, and and God you got people and people on the other tablet you got people and God on this tablet what is you know, last time I checked your parents for people, what's it doing on on the, the tablet having to do with God? The answer is that the first tablet is not actually about relationships between people and God. It's between people and someone else, right? What is the larger category here of that would include God and parents, right? A specific kind of category of being, right? Relationships between people and X, right? Fill in X for me. God and parents, people and it's going to be people and their creators, right? We've got two kinds of creators in the world. We've got Mm -hmm. earthly creators and we've got heavenly creators, right? So this is the tablet where where I relate to my creator, which means that the other tablet is the tablet where I relate to my peer, right? Peers and creators. So if you think about creators, a a creator is definitely not your peer, right? In other words, what, if you imagine this as a modern art painting, right? If I'm here in the middle of the painting, where would you put my creator? Above me. Right, somewhere else, right, but specifically above me. In other words, I have a vertical relationship with my creator. My creator is above me. There's nothing I can do to equalize myself with my creator, which is why, like any other relationship I have, no matter how the power distribution works out. Basically, that other person is my peer. It's just a matter of circumstance that they happen to be an authority. If I go to a certain school, then that principal is my authority figure. If I'm working for a certain boss, then that boss is my authority figure. But you can't crawl out of the relationship that Creates the authority relationship when it's talking about you and your parent and when it's talking about you or God. The mere fact of your creation means there's this being above me and I'm down here. So what you might say is that there's two fundamentally different kinds of relationships in the world. There's vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. And tablet number one is vertical relationships and tablet number two is horizontal relationships. So that's the first layer of structure that you see in the Ten Commandments. But the second layer of structure is really fascinating because it rides right on top of that. Once you see that there's two tablets with vertical relationships and horizontal relationships, now consider the fact that there just happens to be five commands in each tablet, right? And now if you are sort of curious about that, and you walk around the block, and you let yourself daydream a little bit, and you get yourself a coffee from Katzefet, and just sort of imagine, hmm, there's vertical relationships, and there's horizontal relationships, and there's these, and there's just happens to be five on each, I wonder if And then your mind goes to, I wonder if they line up with each other. I wonder if the five-on-one tablet.
2: R.E.A. has just made a very satisfied face. I just,
0: the the form of magic is happening in front of our eyes. It's amazing. Right? I wonder if they line up with each other. I mean, like, take your hand, right? If you've got five over here that are vertical relationships and five over here that are horizontal relationships, could you do this? Could you bring your hands together and touch finger to finger, right? And, and do they line up each other? Could you draw a line between commandments 1 and 6, 2 and 7, 3 and 8, 4 and 9, 5 and 10? The first first one in each tablet, the second one in each tablet, the third one in each tablet. And if you could draw that line, just that would be life-changing. Like if we just stopped this recording right here and said, I got to go, I got to run to the airport, I'm only here for a couple hours, right? Even just the implications of the fact that you could draw that line would itself be, would change everything. And the reason why it would change everything is because in a deep kind of way, it would mean that there aren't really Ten Commandments anymore. In a deep kind of way, how many are there really? There's really not two. There's two two sides. sides. There's two vertical and horizontal. I bring them together. Five. There's only five. five. There's five fundamental principles that underlie all relationships that we have whether they're vertical relationships or whether they're horizontal relationships, those principles express themselves in ten commands, but the only reason they express themselves in ten commands is because there's two basic arenas for our relationships. There's vertical arenas and there's horizontal arenas, so the expression of each principle will look a little bit different if it expresses itself vertically or expresses itself horizontally, but the principle is going to be the same, and how am I going to discern what the principle is? The Torah doesn't speak in terms of the principles, it just speaks in in terms of the expressions of those principles, the 10 expressions of them. If I want to discern the principle, I need to draw the line. I need to actually draw a line between one and six and say, okay, what's the common denominator between these two commands, right, if I look at Murder, for example, the first commandment on one tablet, and I look at I am the Lord your God, recognize God, then I would say to myself, hmm, what's the line that binds these two together? What's the fundamental commonality in these two ideas? What I am the Lord your God, recognition of God, is in the world of my relationship with my creators and the vertical world, right? Do not murder is in the horizontal world, right? So now factor out the horizontal part and the vertical part, and then solve for x, right? And what is the fundamental underlying principle? And when you do that, you actually get to these five basic principles. And let's actually just spend a couple of minutes doing that and just seeing if we can I just, isolate the principles. So I'd say, okay, hmm, murder. What's the commonality between do not murder, right, and recognize your creator, oh, right? It's like sentimental okay. I would say, well, there's something very, very significant about people and they're tellomellochem. So don't get rid of etcomelochem, right? And also don't get rid of elokim. You might say, well, what do you mean don't get rid of elokem? I mean I'm not killing elochem, but I'll stop you right there and say, well, could you kill Elochim? And those What's the reason? There's motivations you might have for killing someone. Lots of motivations, right? I can have all sorts of motivations for killing someone. Basically, any time I lie in bed at night and I say to myself, I think my life might be a little bit better without Joe in the world. right? My next question is, am I going to get rid of Joe? right? Am I going to kill Joe? Then, And the Bible says, don't do that. right? Deal with Joe. Don't kill him. But now let's take that into the vertical sphere. And I say, well, is it possible you might lie in bed at night and convince yourself that your life might be a little bit better without your creator in the world? And you could imagine a person thinking that, right? There are certain advantages to living in a world without your creator. There's cheeseburgers, do not have to eat kosher. There's all sorts of things I could do if I didn't have my creator in the world. The only thing is, is that I couldn't murder him in order to make that dream come true. But if I wanted to, if I was convinced that I needed to get rid of my creator and I could not murder him, what's the next best thing that I could do? I could not recognize him, right? Because then if I ignored him, that would be getting rid of him too. It would just be getting rid of him for me. In other words, if you think about it in a very deep way, ignoring someone is very similar to murdering them. Murdering someone, I objectively get rid of you. Ignoring you, I don't objectively get rid of you, but I get rid of you for me, Mm -hmm. right? It's like my world doesn't include you. So what the Torah is really saying is that if you think about the fundamental underlying principles, that when it comes to very special beings in the vertical world, that would be my creator, Right? God himself. In the horizontal world, it would mean some sort of reflection of my creator in the horizontal world. So these beings are important enough that when you lie in bed at night and want to get rid of them, you shouldn't do that. You should find a way to deal with them instead. So don't murder, right? And don't ignore. Instead, deal with them. And that's principle number one. If I went to principle number two, so I'd say, all right, let's look at the two commands in principle number two. I've got don't commit idolatry, and I've got don't commit adultery. Those are my two commands, right? Idolatry and adultery even sound similar in English, but conceptually they're similar too. What would you say is the commonality between idolatry and adultery? Infidelity. 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 Infidelity is principle number two. Don't mix in someone into an exclusive relationship into which they don't belong. Right? In the vertical sphere, my most sacred relationship is marriage. It's meant to be exclusive. It's meant to. It's not meant to include those that aren't part of the bond. If you mix that in on the, on the side, we consider that adultery. Similarly, in the vertical sphere, I also have a sacred relationship. It's called worship. It's also exclusive. If I mix something in that doesn't belong, we call that idol- we call that idolatry. Both of them are a betrayal. Both of them are pernicious and can destroy the fundamental relationship. Don't do that. That's principle number two. Principle number three, Lotisa, Shema Do not take God's name in vain. Matches up to Lotignov, right? Do not steal. Specifically, the rabbis understand that as a reference to kidnapping, which is actually stealing someone's body. And if you think about lotisa, it's isn't it interesting they've it translated that in Hebrew, like literally. What does the word tisa mean? Lotisa. So lifted up. It literally is the imagery of stealing. It's like, do not lift up and carry off God's name, right, without permission. There's this sense of stealing with both of these, which is like, God, in the vertical sphere, he doesn't really have things of his in this world. But the closest he has is actually something which is similar to a human body. What's a human body? A human body, if you think about it, is really your most precious possession. It's actually the most important possession you have. Right? And you might say, well, body is not really my possession. It's me. But it's not true, because the words my body means there's a me that has my body, right? right? My body is my most important possession. So don't lift up and carry off my body without my permission. Now God doesn't have a body, but he has something similar to a body. A body is the expression of yourself in this world. God's expression of himself in this world is his name. Mm-hmm. So don't use his name in a way that doesn't comport with his wishes, right? Don't steal, don't take precious things of another is principle number three. Principle number four expresses itself in honor the Sabbath and keep it holy on one, expresses itself with Lotana Bracha Don't do not um, do not uh, bear false witness against one's fellow, what would you say testimony right, has yeah. to do with well, the do. Shabbat, is an do. Yeah. Shabbat is testimony. That's why we're supposed to stand up and shul with two witnesses and say the words, you're mm-hmm. supposed to stand up and testify something. So principle number four is actually stand up and tell the truth about somebody in court. right? Don't lie about them because that's a terrible relationship breach right the same way i can sort of steal things from you i can actually steal less tangible things from you too i can steal your reputation if i would say like uh, what have you done with your life in this world if i lie about you in court right so i'm I'm taking away your actions from you. I'm taking away your reputation from you. What did God do? What God did is he created the world. If I take that away from God, I'm taking something from him the same way. So if I lied about what you did that was important, I'd be taking that away from you. So principle number four is don't do that. Stand up and tell the truth about the other when push comes to shove. And finally, the last principle, the hardest one to see the connection between them, is Honor your parents on the one hand, and do not covet lotachmod on the other side. And the question, what that seems to suggest, is that what honoring your parents is in the vertical world, right? Not coveting is in the horizontal world. Or to put it another way, you might say that there's a certain personality flaw that one might have which could express itself in two ways. It would express itself in the horizontal sphere as an inability to honor their parents in a sense that I cannot honor my parents. But the way it would look in the horizontal world is that you would be obsessed with coveting, right, things of your fellow. And now the question is, what is that issue that you would have that would lead you into those two stances? Is it...
2: It's like a, a deficiency in akhba B'Khalqa, as in y- your parents sort of give you your yes, standing in the world exactly. and you're yeah. unhappy with it, so you want what someone else has. Right, and
0: that's a very profound idea, if you really think about it. So let's just concretize that for a moment, right? What is sort of obsessive coveting about? Like, what if I walked out of the podcast recording with you guys, right? And I, um, you know, as I'm on my way to the airport, I find myself thinking, and I've got this image in my mind, and I'm thinking about Alex's very cool water bottle that he's got over there, (laughs) right? It's a very cool water bottle. It's like maybe it's monogrammed. It's 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 sort of gray graphite, and it's got this really great cap, and it's Pictures in the show. Right, an amazing water bottle. (laughs) I have
1: a really cool bottle, also. It's downstairs. Right, exactly. (laughs) I didn't
0: want you to have any like feelings of jealousy (laughs) towards it. I left. I've got this lousy little cup over here for water, but Alex is got this amazing water bottle. And I'm like thinking about this water bottle and I like, can't get it on my head and the whole plane ride back. And then the next day it's like I can't even think about work because I'm thinking about Alex and his million dollar water bottle. And I'm thinking like when can I get back to Israel to see Alex? I'm really coveting his water bottle. It's like maybe I can get him to sell it to me. Maybe I can get him to buy it. And then like after a few days of this, imagine like I, I literally can't concentrate on work. I'm obsessed with these thoughts of coveting Alex's water bottle, so I enroll myself in therapy, right? And my psychiatrist has a few sessions with me. I keep on saying, I just can't get this image of Alex's water bottle out of my head. I just, I must have it. I have to go back and get I'll steal it, I'll take it. I'll, I must have this water bottle. So imagine my therapist, very high-priced therapist, imagine I've I spent $300 a session on this therapist. And finally, after a few sessions, he says to me, look, Foreman, you know, you come in here and you pay me $300 a session to ruminate about Alex's <laughs> water bottle. Why don't we just take a session and we'll go to Target, you know what I mean, across the street over here and we'll buy a water bottle just like Alex's and we'll put all this to rest. Now, if I was really coveting Alex's water bottle, would going to Target and buying a water bottle just like Alex solve things for me? No. No. Why not? Because it's not... Alex's. Water it's not that's not Alex's, which gives you an insight into what's really going on. If I could get a water bottle just like yours at Target, but it wouldn't be good in me because it's not Alex's. I must have Alex's water bottle. And after low tach mode the, I would want Alex's car. and after that, I'd want Alex's lawn, and I'd want Alex's house and Alex's dog, the Alex. And one thing would and it wouldn't be enough, and I would want the next thing that's Alex. And the next thing that's Alex, it gives you an insight into what I really want. What lie am I telling myself when I'm coveting? If only I had the water bottle, I'd be happy. What am I really after? When I'm coveting the water, when I'm coveting your things, what do I really want? Well, you want, you want to be me. I want to be, I want to be Alex. As we all do. <laughs> That's right. As we all do. That's right. In other words, what I really Speak want. for yourself. <laughs> what I really want. i oh, not <laughs> What I really want is Alex's position in life. Right? His position in the world. And the lie I'm telling myself is that if I can just surround myself with enough of Alex's things right? that I'm going to feel more Alex-like. right? And, and, uh, but it never really works. So I just want the next thing of Alex, and the next thing of Alex. And then maybe I could feel like I could crawl out of this terrible position of life called being David. right? And I could just be more Alex-like, but it never really works because it's a lie, because I can't really get into your position in life by surrounding yourself with your things. Now, if I was telling myself that kind of lie about needing to be Alex-like, and that was what was governing my horizontal relationships, what do you think would happen to my vertical relationships? What kind of relationship am I going to have with my mom and my father if in horizontal relationships I'm convinced that I must be Alex in order to be worthwhile? I mean, this is,
2: feels terribly Freudian, but as in you're, you're not going to have, you, you're going to resent. So anything, any part of that sort of that birth relationship that you had
0: Absolutely. at every moment. I'm going to completely resent my parents because what's the whole reason why I should honor my parents? Why should I bother honoring my parents? What did they ever do to me they that m- I should honor me?
1: They made, you. they made you.
0: They made me. They didn't just give me life. They gave me my life with my genes and my upbringing and my education and everything that goes into making me me. But if that's not good enough, if I need to be Alex, if I'm trying to crawl out of being me, so I'm resentful of my parents, how'd you give me these defective genes? How'd you give me this defective position in life? I'm not going to honor you. I'm going to desecrate you. You gave me the wrong stuff, right? That is the problem, right? And why those two things go hand in hand. So when the Torah says no, Don't covet Alex's water bottles, right, and everything else of Alex, and honor your parents. What's it really telling me, right? What am I supposed to be doing? Be you. Be you, right, which is don't get rid of the special you, right? Which is like, yeah, we all have things that we think we could be better about. We've all got our as we say in Yiddish. We've all got our imperfections. But your fundamental station in life, with all of its deficiencies, with all of the things, the, the deficits that you can come along and say, this, these are the deficits that just come to you from your station in life, is exactly the deficits that you're supposed to have. That's the, those are the cards you're supposed to be dealt in life, and it's wonderful. The the life that you have is wonderful, and now go to live it as fully as you possibly can be, and therefore don't bother coveting Alex's stuff and rejoice in what your parents gave you. So those are the five basic principles that emerge from these Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are really just the outer vestiges of five basic principles. If you line up the five basic principles, the third and final layer of structure, which I think Hillel saw was the how do you go from one to f- from one to five? If you look at the five principles, principle number one is don't get rid of the special other, right? Which is uh, God or another person. Don't murder. Don't uh, right recognize God. Don't get rid of the special other. Don't betray a sacred relationship. Um, don't steal a person's belongings. Don't damage their reputation. Stand up and tell the truth about them. And finally, and finally be okay with yourself. But another way of saying being okay with yourself is very intriguing. Don't get rid of the special self. And isn't it fascinating that if you look at principle number one and principle number five, they kind of reflect each other. Principle number one is don't get rid of the special other. And principle number five is don't get rid of the special self. And it's almost like you have to start with the special other before you can appreciate the special self, which is a fascinating thought, right? It's not, right? It's not I'm okay, you're okay. It's you're okay, I'm okay, right? It, it's it's a fascinating way of thinking about it, and another and. and it really gets to, I think, the answer to that question I started with you, which is, if you had to take Rav formulation, sorry, I keep on mixing these guys up, Hillel's formulation, that which is hateful to you, don't do to you, fellow. If you had to take that and boil it down to one word, what would you say the one word is? That which is hateful to you, don't do to the other. So you, we agreed that the word is not love. Right? That's not love. It, we don't that's not love. So if it's not love, what is it? It's like balance or reciprocity or something I don't know. My argument would be it's non-violation of boundaries. What you might call respect. Let me yeah. argue to you that all five principles are about this. Principle number one, the most fundamental violation of boundaries is if I simply get rid of you. Right. If I, even if I ignore you i <clears throat> and reading you subjectively, but I'm literally getting you out of my life. I'm violating you. You just literally don't exist. But the next little orbit that I could violate in your life is like you've got this. You can almost imagine like a solar system with these different orbits. You can almost imagine a solar system around any person right, these sort of different levels of self. I've got me, I've got my sacred relationship, either marriage, right, in in, in one sphere, or in the vertical sphere of worship. So don't betray and, and destroy that sacred relationship. Don't violate that, right, that's principle number two. Principle number three, I've got my possessions. My possessions feel like extensions of myself. My body feels like an extension of myself. God's name, right, don't violate that. Right is principle number three. Don't violate that of someone else, their expression of themselves. Then I've got people's actions. They're also an expression of me. What makes me me, what I've done in the world, makes me me. Stand up and tell the truth about somebody. Honor what they've done in the world. Stand up and the truth about tell the truth about God. Honor that level of self, right? Which is that in all these different levels of self, don't violate them. Right? Now Then you finally get to the fifth principle, which is about something else entirely. The fifth principle is don't get rid of the special other, don't get rid of the special me. And it's almost like there's a path that gets from principle one to principle five. And the path, fascinatingly, is the path to self-acceptance, right, to non-violation of self. If you might say, like, let's say someone suffers from self-esteem problems. They don't really like themselves very much. They don't really respect themselves very much. How are you going to possibly convince that person that they should have any sort of self-esteem, that they shouldn't get rid of their own sense of self? Right? You could tear your hair out talking to people like this. Uh, you're a good dancer. You're a good artist. What will they tell you? Right? If somebody really doesn't have self-esteem. You say, but you're such a good artist. What will they say? Someone else is better. What? Someone else is better. Someone else is better, right? Um, you're only saying that to flatter me, because they really feel that if I made it, it must be deficient, because I'm deficient, right? You can't convince them. There's nothing you can say. You can't just have someone write on the blackboard 500 times, I am OK. How do you help someone? that I believe the Ten Commandments answer is, have them observe the Ten Commandments. That's what you do. Why? Because if you really observe the Ten Commandments, what you're doing is, is I am not violating I'm respecting every single person in the room, every single person in my life, all 26 people I relate with, right? I, I, I will not get rid of them. I will not betray their sacred relationships. I will not violate them in any of these four ways, any of these four orbits of self. And why? Why won't I do that? Like, is it, what's the common denominator of all these beings that I will not violate them? God, people people with brown hair, people with blue eyes, short people, not short people, smart people, dumb people, what, non-Jews, Jews. like What's the commonality between all of them that I owe them this fundamental respect that I will not violate any of these aspects of their sense of self? The answer gets to the thing that you guys both said in principle number one, which is, what's special about them is their tzallam there's this little sacred spark within them, which is godly, right? And that's so special that I'm not going to violate them, no matter how convenient it is, no matter how much I'd rather think that my life would be better off if I could just violate. I just will not do that because there's this basic sacredness. If you could boil, if you could boil Hill's principle down to one word, the word is respect. I will respect them and not violate them because of that special sanctity. Their their fundamental souls are images of the divine. And once that's true, and once I won't violate every single person in in the room in that kind of way, there's a certain kind of psychological principle that begins to kick in, and it's cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is when your beliefs are out of sync with your actions, something's got to give. And what we found is that when your beliefs are out of sync with your actions, what usually gives? What changes? What changes is your beliefs. Right? People will change their beliefs faster to correspond to their actions. Then they'll change their actions to correspond to their beliefs. So if I start acting in a way where I'm respecting everybody in the room. At a certain point of time, I've got to look and say, but there's one person in this room that I'm not doing that to. It's me. I'm not respecting my own sense of self. At some point, you have to say, but one second, this doesn't make any sense. Right? I'm no different than anyone else. And your actions begin, right? And, and what happens is that the actions which I'm taking change my beliefs about myself. And suddenly, one second, I have this fundamental spark of the divine too. No matter what my disabilities, no matter what my problems, no matter what my issues, right? I shouldn't be coveting Alex's stuff. I should be honoring my parents. I am okay. There's a fundamental okayness to who I am. And then I'm not just getting rid of the special other, I'm also not getting rid of the special self. Right? And what you then and I think that's where Akiva gets it from. And if you think about the last thing I'd just say about this is that if you think about, I'm sorry, I keep on mixing them up, that's where Hillel gets, that's where Hillel gets this from. But if you think about Hillel and Rabbi Akiva, what they're really arguing about is, is love and respect, and maybe they're not arguing. In other words, at some fundamental level, sure, maybe the Torah is about love your neighbor as yourself. But love your neighbor as yourself is predicated on something. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It's predicated on respect. It, respect. Love without respect is actually very, very dangerous. Um, if you, uh, you know, and uh, I we, uh, you know, Christian-Jewish relations happen to be pretty good right now, right? But in the olden days, in the days of pogroms and in the days of, of the Inquisition, it wasn't so great. And if you would interview, you know, a marauding inquisitor through a small town in Europe, you say, "Well, why are you killing all?" This? "No, well, I love them very much. I'm just seeking to convert them, right?" It, you you can love without respect, in a way, and it could be a dangerous thing indeed if you think about love conceptually, what love is is a breaking down of boundaries between two separate selves. And that feels wonderful, right? To be able to merge with another being physically, emotionally, spiritually, is one of the most sublime things in the world, right? It just feels it's the stuff of Hollywood movies. It's the stuff that we all that we all crave. But to the extent that love is the breaking of boundaries between two separate beings, there's something that can be lost in love. And the dangerous thing that can be lost in love is if love is two separate eyes coming together to form a we, a union, a breaking down of self, what can be lost is the individual, the sense of a separate I. You can lose that in love. You can, And if you lose that in love, it's dangerous. If I marry somebody, right? And I start to not respect their independence as a separate self, even as I join with them. It can get pretty scary pretty quickly, right? How come you have your own friends? How come you need? We have our friends, right? How come you have to have your own hobbies? We have things that we do together, right? I start to quash your own sense of separateness, and what's What's the guarantee that I don't do that? What the Torah seems to be saying is the first thing you've got to live up to is the Ten Commandments. The first thing you have to live up to are these five principles. These five principles are about understanding and, and respecting someone as a separate being, separating, understanding myself as a separate being, respecting both of those. And once that's true, then I'm ready for I'm ready for love. And so that would be my Torah on one foot. It's really not original. I think it's just Rivia Akeem and a Hill together. I think it's where they got it from, and I think where they got it from illuminates what really lies at the core of what they're saying. Wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's jet-lagged. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay, so, <clears throat> so in terms of that being your Torah on one leg, um, And I'm quite interested in this. I'm I'm, I'm not necessarily most surprised, but I think, in terms of obviously uh, the the answer, you can tell and the Chup here, everything we talked about, is very kind of about human relationships, respect, love, and not that I'm surprised that you believe in all those things, I think we all believe in all those things, um, but in terms of uh, when, when people think about Rabbi David Forman, obviously they associate with you in terms of Aleph Beta um, and, and, uh, and Tanakh study online and how you've revolutionized the way people learn Torah online. How, how do you see these two things come together?
0: Which two things, what I just do, said. How now. do you
1: see it? How do you see that, that, that your, your Torah, how does that link in with kind of the work that you've dedicated yourself to?
0: Sure. I mean, to me, the work that I've dedicated myself to is really trying to turn on people to um, seeing the Torah as something that can actually guide them in their lives and seeing it as a I mean, seeing it as a as a sacred book that that, that you know makes their face shine. I, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. You know, there's different layers of what it is I'm doing. One layer, you could say, well, foreman, yeah, he's doing some really cool stuff online. He's got these really cool videos. He's using technology. He's using podcasts. He's got this company, Aleph Beta. His method of delivery of Torah is really different. Nobody else really came up with this idea of like documentaries on Bible and stuff, and uh, with music, and I, my kids like it. And that's sort of one level you could say. And so I can get invited on, you know, podcasts that are about using technology for Torah and things like that, but to me that's the most superficial level of what I'm doing. It is true, that's there, and it's amazing that it's there because it's a great delivery system, but ultimately it's really just a delivery system because we live in a world of video, we live in a world of technology, so it's, it's using that. At a deeper level, what, what I'm doing is about is about an underlying methodology. It's what I'm doing now. If I had the methodology without a delivery system, no one would ever know about it. So <laughs> I'll admit that that's important, right? But the methodology is, I believe, is really what it what it's about. But what is that methodology? So I'll tell you a story. I met somebody a little while ago in. Uh, you know, in a salad store in, in Woodmere. And um, he said to me, he says, Rabbi Foreman, you know, I know you have a shul nearby. I don't daven in your minion, but I have a question for you. I have a friend who looks just like the rest of us. He wears a black hat. He sends his kids to the, to the best schools. He sits right next to me in shul. But he's really going through a crisis of faith, and he doesn't believe anything anymore and he is just going through the motions. I don't think he even observes the Sabbath anymore in his own privacy, but he loves his wife and doesn't want to divorce him and loves his kids. And so he's just going through the motions. What would you say? to a person like that. So I'm looking at this guy, and I don't know whether he's asking for a friend, as it were, right? or if he's really asking Is he himself, standing on one leg? What? Is he standing on one right? leg? And, he, and in essence, he's standing on one leg. It's like, tell me, what, what's the answer to this question yeah. standing on? And I, frankly, I don't remember exactly what I answered him. But walking out of, I don't think it was a very good answer, but walking out of the salad store, I was thinking, you know, gee, if I had a guy like that, I don't know what I can answer him now. But I do think I know what I can answer him five years ago, right? If I if I could get a guy like that five years ago, right, what would be the answer? And to me, that's kind of where the methodology comes in. If you look at all the Aleph-Beta content, all the books through Koren, all of that, all that stuff that I put out there, there's something at the bottom that has, that is consistent, right, between all of them. And I sort of think about it in terms of three things. The first of those things is a kind of, there's a methodology here, a kind of way of reading text which is able to sort of peel off layers of meaning and show layers of meaning in the Torah, to take something which just sort of seems random, like the Ten Commandments, 10 sort of random ideas. I don't even have any idea why they're all in the same document. They just seem like a bunch of laws, and they don't seem that meaningful to me in life. And the Torah is full of all these things that don't seem so meaningful, all these stories that don't seem so meaningful, all these laws that don't seem so meaningful. But there's a methodology that begins to sort of connect the dots and see these as part of a larger whole. And no, there's this organism, there's this thing that's a living, breathing thing. It's called the Ten Commandments. And don't you see how it connects, and the interconnectivity between them, between these two sides, the structure, how the structure builds upon each other? And it's once you can do that with text and be able to see sort of the meta text, the, the meaning that emerges, and the, and the structure that emerges from the text. And you see that it's sort of not a figment of our imagination, but it's actually there. And you begin to realize that it's there. And you see that it's there consistently. It's not just in the Ten Commandments. It's also in Genesis. It's not just in Genesis. It's also in in Exodus. It's in the most mundane stories in Vayikra and Bamidbar. It's all there. You begin to get the sneaking suspicion that this book is a book like no other, which, by the way, is a name for one of our podcasts. I recommend you go listen to it if you haven't already. It's literally called a book like no other. But you begin to get this sense that, gee, like I don't remember seeing a book like this. Like Shakespeare wasn't like this. Chaucer wasn't really like this. Beowulf wasn't really like this. This really is a book like no other. It's consistently written at these different levels of meaning, and there's a way of, and there's a way of getting there. And that's leads to the second point. The second point is the way of getting there. The way of Getting there isn't like some bearded person coming over to me and hitting me over the head or yelling at me in a loud voice and saying the Torah is very deep, right? It's like, all right, fine, you think the Torah is deep, great, right? But I don't think that. Like, you can yell at me, you can convince me if you have enough charisma, maybe you can convince me, but there's a whole difference between that. And me seeing it, seeing it through my own eyes. If I, if you could lead me through this methodology and lead me on a journey where it's very simple, I just begin to see in my own head that. Just the words. It's not like any commentary. It's nothing fancy. It's just, it's just seeing how the words line up and just seeing the structure that emerges. I can lead through this, and I can follow logically. It's my brain is doing this, and what that does is it completely begins to revolutionize the relationship I have with this text. It's like you're here in Israel. One of the big things in Israel is going on like on archaeology digs, right? So if I go into Yavna on an archaeology dig and I'm like digging there in the And I find this coin from the Bar Kokhba revolt, which hasn't been touched by human hands in the last 1,600 years. And suddenly, this is my coin. And it's got that picture of Bar Kokhba. I feel connected to Jewish history in a whole new way. this is, I'm digging into the dirt and I feel like I'm part of something that's larger than me, this land and the destiny of this people. We have something besides the land and even besides our history. We've got the Torah and it is a book like no other. And once you can use your mind to begin to connect to it, that's very powerful. We sometimes don't realize how much alienation there is between us and the book in the nicest of ways. Just the mere fact that we study commentaries all the time. Think about this. You never even really study the Torah. You study Rashi. You study the Hey MacDover. You study the Mizrahi's Pirush and Rashi. You have tests and all these commentaries. You think to yourself, who am I? I'm not as smart as the Ramban. I'm not as smart as Hirsch. I'm a, I live at their toenails. Maybe I could understand a little bit of a commentary and why this commentary thinks that. But we feel like we're so distant from the text. But what if you didn't feel that distant? What if you just looked at the text and you suddenly felt like you had the ability to begin to peel off these layers and dig your hands in the dirt and to see that this is a book like no other, That's really empowering, so that's principle number two. It's a book like no other, and I can access it with my own mind. And principle number three is, and once I do that, I begin to see that all these things that seemed irrelevant, like these 10 things in the 10 Commandments, or this law about the the shore, this person that got into a fight, and, and there's a shore, and there's this, all these really arcane, irrelevant laws Suddenly, they're not so arcane and irrelevant. Once I begin to see the layers of meaning, and I begin to see the structure, I begin to see the whole, then the Ten Commandments aren't these random laws. It's actually talking about my life and very basic principles in my life and how I'm supposed to be living. And it's consistently like that. In story after story and narrative after narrative, it's talking to me about some of the deepest things I struggle with all the time. So when those three things happen, right, it's a book like no other. I can access it with my own mind and have a relationship with it. And what it's talking about me are some of the most basic things that I struggle with in figuring out how to live my life. When you put all that together, that revolutionizes a person's relationship with Torah. If you ask about what I'm doing, that's what I'm doing, right? That's the significance of, of Aleph Beta. It's not just about the movies, right? It's about falling in love with the book.
2: Yeah, being very, I mean, thank you so much for giving us your time on this very short visit to Israel, and you're effectively on your way to the airport right now. So <laughs> I want to say thank you. I think at different points throughout the last 55 minutes or so, my mind has been been blown several times I've seen REAs uh mind blown face uh, across the table a number of times available as gift. Now available as a gift. <laughs> I mean, a gift. Um, but I want to say thank you uh, so much for, for sitting with us and providing that inspiration and, and those opportunities to have our minds blown um, I've got lists of questions that I want to ask but we'll have to save them uh, okay. for another we can,
0: if you'd like to do an epilogue on Zoom or something like that I've got a professional mic I can send you the,
2: oh, I'm sure, okay, the, fine.
0: the, the version of it but yeah. I will say that it's a pleasure to come in here I have I've a lot of Hakara Satov and gratefulness to you guys for being such great publishers to work with and also for the work that you're doing with these podcasts which is putting the voices of your authors uh, and people close to you out into the world is a great thing. It's not just the books it's the people and giving a, giving folks out there a connection to uh, to your authors I think is wonderful work and I commend you guys for it.
2: Thank you very much and thank you for joining thank us.
0: Thank you much. Yeah.
2: Wow, uh, that's all the time we've got Uh, for this episode of the current podcast but I think we'll definitely have to take Rabbi Foreman up on his offer to do an epilogue uh, once he is back in America Um, that really was a fantastic episode Um, if you would like to be in touch with us you can do so via email podcast at currentpub.com or on all the social media sites uh, at currentpublishers you too can be like Alex and stock your shelves with uh, current books Uh, using the promo code podcast at checkout from www.currentpub.com and please make sure to uh, like and subscribe and uh, review the current podcast al regalak wherever you're listening um, and until next time this has been the current podcast al regalak <laughs>